Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season two of HBO Succession is back, and the Ringers Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are here to give you the latest in Roy family drama. Every Sunday night, they'll be breaking down what we just saw on our new show called Number One Boys, a Succession After Show. You can tune in live on the Ringers Twitter every Sunday night right after the episode ends. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. Today on the podcast, we may or may not get an Andy Greenwald cameo, but I believe that Andy's news that he teased on Monday was going to be the announcement that Briar Patch will be showing at the Toronto International Film Festival. I could not be prouder of Andy. You know, as a guy we all know and love and who watches most of his movies on airplanes. I know that it was his dream in life to be seen at the Toronto International Film Festival. But sincerely, it's really, really cool that Briar Patch is going to be at Toronto. There's always so much good stuff there. So to see his his work getting recognized there is incredible. Maybe he'll be able to call in and chat a little bit about it. Today, you know, for these Thursday shows, what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about, like, kind of run through you know, TV and review. What's on right now? What are what are we checking out? I have Sean coming on. Sean Fantasy is going to join me in a few minutes, and we're going to talk a little bit about The Boys, which is on Amazon, which a lot of people have been hitting me up on social media to check out, and I finally did. And it was a so far, it's been a very satisfying experience. I wanted to chat a little bit. Uh, I have nobody to talk about it with, so I'm just going to stare at Kaya while I do it, which I'm sure is super cool for her. Um, is Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu, which. Uh, is one of those weird things, you know, because like I think that I'm always kind of tempted to put these shows into like buy or sell or, you know, check it out or just completely eject it. I would say that I have like a low grade addiction to this show, partially driven by my wife, who seems more engaged with it than I am. But for those of you guys who don't know, this is Mindy Kaling's adaptation of um, a very beloved, gosh, I guess it's like a 90s film. Uh, a 90s British movie. It's set, the television adaptation is on Hulu. It's set in London. It stars Natalie Emanuel, who many people know uh, from Game of Thrones. And it's essentially about a group of friends who are living in London. Some are American, some are British. And the sort of structure is supposed to be four weddings and a funeral. And there are those things. But for the most part, it is your typical group of people in their late 20s, early 30s living in a city together, falling in and out of love, coupling up. I think this show is trying to do a lot. And it's fine because like, I'm obviously like, I'm pot committed. You know, I think the first batch of episodes have gone up on Hulu. They they might have actually, I think what they did was release a section and then they're going to do some more weekly releases going forward. It's obviously something that I feel like has been through kind of like a process developmentally, like in terms of like what it was supposed to be because there's some tonal shifts. Sometimes there's a competition to decide within the show who is important and who we're paying attention to. It's interesting. I think that uh, as these streaming shows go forward, you're going to see a lot of scripts that might have been meant for weekly releases as a 22-minute show that now get expanded to 45-minute episodes that are released all at once. And the way in which we watch these shows can really change how we feel about them. Now, I think that there are some inherent structural problems to forwardings in a funeral. And of course, like some of it might just be that it's not always my jam, but I actually am a pretty big rom-com fan. Not, I don't know if you guys know that about me, but like I'm kind of a sap. So I'm definitely game for 
a 10 episode romantic comedy from Mindy Kaling set in London. Like I'm, I'm all for that. And there are some really nice comedic turns here and there in the show. Uh, Natalie Emanuel, who I believe is British is playing an American in the show, which I don't know if she, she does the accent fine, but has kind of a thankless role. Uh, has to live a lot of this show doing things in secret. So a lot of her character is basically trying to hide things from people. I think that people will be surprised when they come across this show because it has a little bit more melodrama than I, I think most people would expect from it. Not that Four Weddings and a Funeral wasn't melodramatic in its original inception, but I think the way that people have kind of approached Mindy's stuff in the past is that it's kind of a riff on comedic tropes that she she loved growing up, as is like in 2019, a lot of things do wind up being pastiche. I don't really find this to be too pastiche I think that it just feels like a show that we sh- the, by the time you get to like mid-first season, you're almost like, this feels like something that should be happening in the third season of a television show. And it's kind of hard to explain what I mean by that without giving away major plot points. And to, to this show's credit, there are actually like things happen, like characters get married, characters die, what have you. But tonally, it's kind of hard. And comedy is hard anyway. But it's, it's kind of interesting to see. Sometimes it's very broad, satire of pop culture and sometimes it's supposed to be very heartfelt and I find it interesting to watch them grapple with that and to watch them grapple with what kind of show it wants to be by all accounts it's supposed to be a limited series so I don't know that they'll ever get a chance to to take another swing at the pinata but it it, it is an interesting like if you like rom-coms I can see it being the kind of thing that you're like I've watched four episodes and now I have to finish it to find out what happens uh in a lot of ways Tone is the front and center of the conversation I want to have with Sean about the boys, which is something that has been in development for a really long time uh, as a feature. It's a Garth Ennis Ennis comic, and it had been, I think since the mid-2000s, people have been talking about making this. Columbia was talking about making it as a feature. And obviously, the world of content has changed enough so that you can have something like the boys, which is run by Eric, Eric Kripke, but has also input from Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Dan Trachtenberg, who made 10 Cloverfield Lane. And it essentially looks like a movie. I mean, it, it basically feels like a like they spent a ton of money on this. There are some cheesy special effects, but for the most part, it's kind of like Hollywood-grade superhero filmmaking, but really raunchy, very cynical. And I'm going to talk to Sean a lot about the tone that this show strikes. So coming up, my conversation with Sean about the boys. And then the back half of this podcast will be my conversation with the great filmmaker, Carl Franklin. Now, Carl Franklin made one of my favorite movies of all time called One False Move uh, with Bill Paxton and Michael Beach and Billy Bob Thornton. That was back in like 92, I think. And since then, he also made Devil in a Blue Dress, which is a uh, adaptation of a Walter Mosley novel starring Denzel Washington, which is fantastic. And he's gone on to become one of the sort of most dependable, reliable, and ever-present television directors uh, of the last 10 years. You can find his work on Homeland and The Newsroom and Leftovers and tons of other stuff. And Carl Franklin is one of the directors working on Mindhunter Season 2. It is Mindhunter Season it's back. It's back on Friday. You may not know that because it's been a pretty quiet buildup. In fact, there has not really been any buildup. I have gotten a chance to see a couple of episodes. It comes out on Friday. So by the time you're probably listening to this, you'll have access to Mindhunter. 
I talked to Carl Franklin about working with David Fincher, about coming onto a program that's already kind of established its visual language and how he learns that language and what he does with that. And it was a really fascinating conversation with a veteran, veteran filmmaker. Uh, and it gives you a taste of what's coming on Mindhunter in the second season. There are no spoilers in the in the conversation with Carl Franklin. So enjoy that. Check it out once you've watched a few episodes. Check it out before you watch a few episodes. I'm pretty into this second season from what I've seen. I think it's pretty, it's different than the first season. It feels, um, I know this is going to sound like a weird way to describe a show that was already pretty detail obsessed, but it feels very granular. A lot of the drama is submerged under people doing their work in a very, very specific way and in a very procedural way. I don't mean that like a CSI way. I mean, you're literally almost feeling like the script sometimes feels like it's transcripts of people talking about their work. So it's a, it takes a little bit of getting used to in terms of like how it's, how the dialogue is happening because it's very, very, very matter of fact. But I think just like the first time where people had to get used to watching the first few episodes of Mindhunter before it really took flight in mid-season, I think that's happening again. And I think that they reckon with some of the stuff that people thought were, was kind of glossed over in the first season. It's, it's almost less atmospheric and more straight on, head on, dealing with what is, what is causes this violence, what this violence does to its victims, and what it does to the people who are, uh, whose job it is to investigate it and to explain it. It's, it's kind of a fascinating in investigation. It's not sensationalistic. It's not particularly funny. I mean, it's not particularly like, uh, it's very, very, very direct. And I'll be really curious to see how people feel about it, especially since... Netflix hasn't done a lot of promo around it. There's like a, a teaser trailer. Uh, episodes were were not really sent out wide. And, you know, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating response. So I'm curious to see what people think of Mindhunter Season 2. We'll be talking about that next week. Jason C. and I are going to be talking about it. We'll also obviously have more Succession stuff next week. So let's get into my conversation with Fennessy about the boys and then later with Carl Franklin about the next season of Mindhunter. And I will talk to you guys on Monday. So now I'm joined by Fennessy. Uh, Sean, I was just in my my opening statement, my monologue. You went Jim Rome. I did. I just got into the jungle. <laughs> I was talking a little bit about Four Weddings and a Funeral, the, the Hulu adaptation. I hear that's not great. It's not great. And I think a lot of it is like, it's got an uncertainty about what the tone of the show is supposed to be. Okay. And I, you know, shows don't necessarily have to have a monochromatic tone, but I think that The Boys is an example of something that, whether you like it or not, it definitely, definitely, definitely knows what it is. Certainly. Yeah, and this nasty. is obviously, it, it's nasty, it's cynical, so let's talk a little bit about this. This is obviously a graphic novel from Garth Ennis. It's gone through a relatively long development period where I think since 08, people have been trying to like get into this to make this. Goldberg and Rogan made this with Dan Trachtenberg, who has made, made one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, Playtest, and also directed 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I think... Personal favorite of mine. ...is still a really rock-solid watch. Really great thriller. And this is like a super gritty story. So like basic, the basic premise, if you don't already know, is this is on Amazon, hour-long episodes, and it is a world in which there has essentially been an in corporatization of superheroes, that there are super-abled people about 250 at least known in the first few episodes at least. We we're going to be talking about the first two episodes. And there is a, um, a corporation, Vought, Voight? Is it Voight? I think it's Vought. Vought. There's a corporation called Vought that sort of runs the world's superheroes 
Uh, they are almost like a fully integrated, you know, megacorp that handles their personal appearances, their licensing deals, their their actual crime fighting up down to the analytics that they provide for the heroes. But as we are quickly made aware of, these heroes are pieces of shit. Yeah. It, Vaught is kind of like Google. Yeah. Or or a Bezos kind of empire, a kind of one-stop Ironically shop enough. for all the things yes. that you may need. <laughs> um, and I was... I, I think you and I both kind of waited a little while to watch this show. I don't know why, even though it's it kind of in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I think I have probably coming out of the summer and and all of the conversations that we've had about superhero content over the last, the first seven months of this year, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm good for superheroes for just as long as I can nab a, a break. Right. And also, I think at this point, I've kind of like got my my fill of like even the, hey, but this is like, the cynical anti-superhero take or what if superheroes were bad or what if superheroes were human like us. And so I was just kind of like, I'm all good. I don't need to like kind of like interrogate this idea anymore. So, I mean, this is how you know that we're in stage three of superheroes as the most important cultural force in the world right now. Stage one was, oh, wow, the uh, Spider-Man. Right. This is a huge movie and it looks good and it feels cool. Stage two is Marvel runs everything. Stage three is we can try anything and it just might work. Mm-hmm. So stage three is Todd Phillips' Joker. Stage three is The Boys. Stage three is Deadpool. Stage three is iterative. Did stage three start with Suicide Squad? I think it's Deadpool is really the, okay. the, the signal change where yeah. it's things can be a little bit nastier, a little bit darker. We can continue to include the concepts of prestige and even problematic storytelling into something that otherwise was meant to be very idealistic. And then we've crystal. seen this before. We've seen this with Westerns before where you got, you have your classic sort of Roy Rogers, like there's the shiny, like perfect hero. Then you start to get slowly and slowly until you get like full blown anti-hero with Peck and Paul. Peck and Paul. Yeah. This is the Peck and Paul period. And that's what they're doing here. So this, so while you have, um, you know what that means though, right? What's coming next? It means this is almost over. Well, that is what that usually that's what that means. Or are we just going to start again? Are well, we going to keep having superheroes, but we're just going to have to be like, what we need is a really idealistic, believable like superhero that we can all like invest in. Possibly, I th- there'll probably be something about the political climate of the world that dictates some of that sure. stuff too. Um, I I do think traditionally with various genre types, the more corrosive they get, the closer they are to expiration in terms of. Being at the forefront. Are we of the breaking American news? Are you, are you predicting a, a sunset for the superhero? I've been talking and writing about that for a while. I I, I think that that's but not. I thought a, you were kind of more like get used to it. This is not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere because they're still making westerns. Right. It just means it's not going to be the most pervasive thing forever. It can't be. I talked on the big picture a little bit about how uh, the Lion King feels actually much more important for the future of movies or the way that we're going to tell stories and the fact that Avatar is going to be the franchise Mm -hmm. of the next 10 years, theoretically, if those movies are any good and people care, because the way that those movies are literally created is like, is what movies might be dependent on whether or not Donald Glover is there or not. No star system whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that isn't a judgment on the boys. Okay. Which I thought, I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. So here's my relationship so far with some of the stuff. I would say a lot of the stuff that Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen do, which I would count myself as a fan of, Preacher lost me a little bit. But I would say that initially what happens is in Preacher and the boys, I'm like, 
man, 15-year-old me would really like this. Totally. And I'm just like, my relationship to the movie or the, sh- the show that I'm watching is, what is my relationship to my 15-year-old self at any given moment? Well, that's a very good question. I actually did read Preacher when I was a teenager, okay. so it was easy to make that connection. I think actually some of the straying from the Preacher text is what made me lose Preacher. Yeah. Um, they took a lot of chances with that show, which I appreciate and admire, but for whatever reason, I couldn't connect with it. This one, I think, is much more relevant to the moment. Um, it seems to be responding specifically to the last phase that we just talked about, that we just experienced. Right. And it also makes sense because it's a great treatise on celebrity, you know, and what we think our celebrities are and what they really are. Yeah, and they have, there is definitely a, uh, we were just talking on the big picture actually about whether or not like movies can keep up with societal change and whether or not they can be truly reflective of a moment in society. Television, I think, theoretically should be able to be a little bit more nimble. The The Boys feels kind of like accurate, but a little bit like older guys trying to understand social media and mm-hmm. some of its portrayals of celebrity. I think this show ultimately for me is working because I really like the performances in mm-hmm. it. Uh, Jack Quaid plays this guy, Huey, who's just like a poor schnook working in an AV store in an, like a radio shack, which is kind of funny because like suggests a little bit of the 2008 nature of this, that there even is like a job at a radio shack anymore. And he, because of a tragedy, kind of finds himself at loose ends and gets hooked up with a sort of mysterious possible law enforcement agent played by Carl Urban. The character's name is Billy Butcher. and Very subtle. What does he call him? Like, you look like a porn version of the Matrix or yeah, something? Yeah, porn version of Neo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I really enjoy the, their, their repartee and their relationship. And then on the other side, on the superhero side, our sort of access point is through this character played by uh, Aaron Moriarty, who um, I think is just kind of like really charming and really interesting. Great actor, yeah. And um, she's playing a character named Starlight. Uh, that's her superhero name. And she comes from Iowa to join... Uh, this collection of superheroes, like this kind of Justice League, and quickly finds out that they're just fucking dirtbags. And it's it's a really smart, interesting way of doing this. And so far, I've just been really engaged with the characters. The plot lines are kind of like, I, I, get, I get it. I see where this is going. Also, Elizabeth Shue plays uh, sort of the head of the corporation. She's and kind of the doing Bezos in this nice case. Nice job there, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Aaron Moriarty character is definitely the best part. She, at least from what I've seen, you and I are only very early into the show. Yeah. Though, I, you know, at, as you know, at this point, the first two really matter because they dictate whether we keep going and I'm going to keep going. Yes. And I think that they have a chance to take a lot of risks with what they do with her. I mean, they basically put her in a kind of sexual misconduct plot line very early in the show. Yeah. And yeah. there's something interesting about that. It's putting those, putting a superhero context on a very tricky story to tell in the real world is fascinating. That's not something that you saw in Shazam yes. or in Aquaman or in Ant-Man and the Wasp. You know, where the superhero stories are not yet at a place where they feel like they can approach those things. They can curse in Deadpool, but they can't actually try to apply real life yeah. stakes yeah. to their stories. Well, because they also are like Ryan Reynolds is like a viable property that we have to like keep there, there are rules that you have to play with movie stars that you don't have to worry about with Carl Urban at this point. Exactly. And that's why there is kind of a, there is kind of a C grade of fame here that I think actually works well for the show. Like Chase Crawford plays one of the superheroes. This yeah. character is called The Deep. 
you may recall Chase Crawford as the least good actor on Gossip Girl. Wow, shots. Um, and he's do you buy that? Yeah. Oh man, there you go. The Thank verdict. you, Kaya. Uh, <laughs> he's good in the show, though. It's not. Yeah, that's nothing against him. He is playing kind of a smarmy and inappropriate figure and not at all what he presents in public. We see him presenting in public, and then very quickly we see what he's like behind closed doors. And it's interesting that they're letting Starlight be an avatar for the downsides of fame mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And the downsides of, like, ascendant fame, you know, there's it's, it's not such a far leap to draw a parallel to, like, a Harvey Weinstein kind of a storyline and what she goes through. Yeah. Which is, is interesting. You know, whether that's going to, like— make people as excited as they are about the next Spider-Man movie, I don't know, but I, I, I thought it was compelling. So one thing that, I, when I say like the 15-year-old boy thing, I, I just think that like when you're like a hormonal teenager and you're reading comics, like your imagination of the action is, like the comic frame kind of inspires you to think about like, what would that be like if he was like running through a building? And I think that is the primary motivating, that is the, the sort of touchstone that, Rogan and Goldberg and Trachtenberg kind of use it, especially in the first episode where it's just like shit explodes, like people's bodies explode. And like, they were like, wouldn't it be sick if this, and then they actually show it. And that is, I think not stomach churning, but it can be probably off putting for some people. But I would say production value wise, it's pretty high. It looks good. Yeah. Yeah. The show looks good. I I was, I liked that aspect that you're describing the idea that, if a Flash-esque character existed... Like A-Train, yeah. Like A-Train in this show, and he was running at the speed of light all the time through the streets of New York City, he might accidentally hit somebody and explode them. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, that's a very, like, uh, late-stage, like, late-capitalism version of comic book writing, <laughs> you know, where you're like, what if we actually fucking took this apart and thought about what's really going on under yeah. the seams of superheroes? But it's it's pretty clever. But like, that's exactly what you're... That, that is phase three. That is like it thinking is. about like yes. what would happen if Translucent, the invisible man, was just like a sexual deviant who yeah. was just hanging out in bathrooms. And that's what Sam Peckinpah is doing in The Wild Bunch. Yeah. He's like, if there was actually a bunch of vigilante bandits the who Magnificent went to Mexico, Seven, yeah. they would fucking kill everybody. Yeah. They wouldn't be heroes. They would be murderers. Yeah. And we're probably at that stage now with superheroes. And I, for one... Welcome our new evil superhero overlords. So we'll keep our eye on the boys. I think we both kind of recommend it to people who are looking for like a different take on the superhero genre. Yeah. Do you have a dead soul? You might enjoy this show. Well, it's like, it's also interesting too, because like I was, I kept thinking of Hancock while I was watching this, Mm. which was this Pete Berg movie from about 10 years ago with Will Smith and Jason Bateman and Charlize Theron, which was, I think in their mind, supposed to launch a, a franchise. I don't know. I can't remember, but I feel like that was like, they were like, and then we could do a sequel that's about the Charlize You know character. who wrote that, right? Who? Vince Gilligan. Oh, I did not know that. And it was rewritten. And apparently the Vince Gilligan version is a lot closer to the boys. Okay. Which is that it was a much more hard-edged superhero story. Okay. Well, if you're really craving it, you can go dig that one up out of the library. Uh, so yeah, the boys on Amazon. Thank you so much to Sean for dropping by. My pleasure. Coming up next is my conversation with Mindhunter director, Carl Franklin. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Luminary. 
a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I am excited about Luminary because it is the only place you can listen to the newest show from the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you cannot miss, watch fans. In 1999, a musical festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and when it was all set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you cannot find anywhere else, like our spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download, and in addition to the can't-miss originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, whether it's music, TV and film, comedy, sports, or more. Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more on Luminary. Get your first two months access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash watch. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash watch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash watch. Cancel anytime. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Righteous Gemstones. What happens when the creators of Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals turn their attention to the world of televangelist preachers? Find out in The Righteous Gemstones coming to HBO this Sunday. This new comedy from Danny McBride centers on the Gemstones, a celebrity televangelist family behind a popular megachurch that also happens to be a major money-making enterprise. McBride stars as Jesse Gemstone, the eldest of three grown Gemstone children who sees himself as a maverick in the ministry game. Joining Jesse are his sister Judy, played by Edie Patterson, and brother Kelvin, a pseudo-hipster who always finds a way to get under his brother Skin, played by Adam Devine. John Goodman stars as the family's patriarch, Eli, who finds himself at a point of crisis as he mourns the loss of his wife. He also questions whether the gemstones are still serving a higher power as they aggressively expand their empire. The Righteous Gemstones is a hilarious and irreverent look at high-living holy rollers whose world of mansions, jets, greed, and corruption belies their virtuous, godly mission. The half-hour comedy premieres this Sunday at 10 p.m. only on HBO. I'm so honored to be joined today by Carl Franklin, filmmaker who's directed a couple of my favorite movies, actually, One False Move and uh, and Devil in a Blue Dress, and as well as a ton of television that Andy and I have talked about over the years, episodes of The Newsroom, Homeland, Leftovers, Bloodline, the dearly departed vinyl, 13 Reasons Why, on and on and on. And he joins a, if you'll forgive the pun, murderer's row of directors this year on the second season of Mindhunter. Carl, thank you so much for joining The Watch. Hey, pleasure, pleasure. So tell me a little bit about how this, how joining uh, the ranks of directors on Mindhunter starts. Do you get a phone call from David Fincher? Is it something that you, did you guys have a relationship before this happened? Well, we'd worked on House of Cards together. Right. Uh, that's where I met David. Um, a guy named John Melfi was the line producer on that show. And I, I guess he alerted David to me, to my, you know, and so I met David and he, uh, he, you know, wanted me to do a couple of those. And so I did. And then I did a couple of the second season. And so when Mindhunter came around, they actually asked me to do a couple of the first season but I was busy and couldn't uh, break away. But they 
you know, contacted me early, you know, really early in the process. Right. Yeah. And so when you're getting involved in a show with somebody like David that, and, a, and a show that has such a distinctive visual look like Mindhunter, can you tell me a little bit about the process of uh, sort of matriculating into the creative and, and actual hands-on production of the show? Like, what happens for a director when you join a, join something that's sort of midstream like this and you're saying, okay, I'm working in a language that's kind of already been established, a visual language that's already been established, but I'm bringing my own sensibility to it. How does that process work out? Well, you know, you, you kind of just actually described it. You know, um, there are certain rules that were basically presented to me in the same way that when we did House of Cards. Just overall, you know, I think, you know, he wanted a much more formal, kind of more traditional look in terms of the, the, the shooting style, as opposed to a lot of shaky cam and handheld and, and steady cam. He kind of wanted, you know, a little more formal handling of the material where there's a lot more choreography within the frame as opposed to, you know, where you do a lot of camera movement. So, but beyond that, you know, it's pretty much whatever, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever tools you want to pull out of that toolkit. But there were certain parameters that were set, you know, early on. And, and of course, it makes sense because of, you know, the kind of show that it is. Yeah, I mean... He's sort of legendary for his meticulous and multiple takes and, you know, getting everything exactly right in a frame. But I imagine television is a somewhat accelerated production schedule. For you, are you, you know, kind of like the Eastwood, let's get it in before lunch kind of guy? Do you like to do lots of takes? What kind of sensibility do you bring on the day of shooting? I kind of, you know, I, I think whatever it is necessary. I used to do a lot more takes than I do now. And then I realized... It's interesting because I was talking with Steven Soderbergh about this, and we were talking about working with David, and he was saying, in comparison, he he views himself as a graffiti artist. <laughs> and so, in some ways, you know, I kind of feel a little like that. You know, um, I I found for me when I was, you know, back in the day when I was shooting more takes for what I was looking for, oftentimes I'd have that in the third or fourth take. And and I wouldn't necessarily, you know, feel that there was a lot of advantage that I would gain by doing more. Mm -hmm. David, you know, is is a technical genius. I mean, he is. I mean, he's, you know, a lot of the things that he's developed, you know, we were were using uh, the the plate van to get, you know, traveling shots, which is something that he he and his uh, DP, but his two DPs, you know, Eric and I can't remember the other DP whom he worked with before, actually developed that technique. So this is a guy who basically is innovative in terms of, you know, what technically, uh, you know, he's doing. And he's very, very detail-oriented. And you feel that. And in some ways, some of that has rubbed off on me. I have to say, I do see the value in it. It makes you lean in closer to the material and, and, and you kind of pay a little closer attention. Because there's something at the same time that even though it's a technical thing, there's something about it that on a deeper level that seems to be operating that that just makes you focus a little more. Yeah, it Um, it feels almost immersive, right? Especially in the second season, just watching the few episodes so far. The level of attention to set design, to costume design, to the stair, you know, the seats on an airplane or, or everything like that, like you just wind up kind of forgetting it's there, but knowing that it's having a deep impact on what you're watching. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It's interesting. It's a it's a different kind of way of uh, dealing with this kind of material. I just was saying this earlier that you don't really see, and I don't want to tip this, you know, the hand, but you don't really get into, you know, physical kinds of murder. You know, actually seeing people murdered and all of that. And maybe I don't know if this is something that that we want to. I don't know whether this is a spoiler, spoiler or not. Right, yeah. Saying that. No, no. I mean, I think that's that's pretty evident from what I've been watching is that it's really about the psychological toll of being mired in this, right? Yeah, and and somehow it actually I think is more true to the to the feeling that murders, you know, kind of causes in this kind of handling as opposed to theatrically trying to represent it. You know, it, 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 and, and the, the interviews, you know, oftentimes, which are several minutes long, you know, there's something about that that is very, that gives you the feeling that you get when you read a news article about a murder, you know, when you, that, that horrible kind of local news kind of trip, you know, with the, where the, the co-ed or whoever it is with the graduation picture is smiling. And then at the same time, you read this thing about this person and, you know, you are aware of the fact that they have people who care about them and that they are, you know, living human beings that are no longer here. Yeah. There's that, there's something about that coldness, that hard kind of, you know, something that, that this show captures. I thought it was fascinating the way that they handle the different processes that Tench and Ford kind of go through to grapple with that kind of trauma. And it's, it, Holt's character tends to like kind of hold stuff at bay and and kind of try to keep the darkness from the edge. And then Holden is kind of allowing himself to be vulnerable to all that. And you get, you really get a feel for the different ways that people process this kind of stuff in the world. It's a, but in the same way that you're talking about where there's a lot of like, there's a lot of space and, and quiet around these characters so that you're really able to live in it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about you know, growing up, did you have much of uh, understanding or or knowledge of of, of BTK of of the Atlanta child murders of, of Son of Sam, like as a as you were growing up? No, I did not. Um, I didn't hear about BTK until I was God. You know, I was I probably was ten years after his whole you know thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Son of Sam. I was aware of because I was an adult by that time. Don't remember what summer that was in New York. I think it was the 77? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I guess 77. So I, w- I was aware of that because for some reason that seemed to have gotten a lot more coverage than a BTK as I remember. Yeah, I mean that was the New Not York Post fan. and everything, you know, cuz it had the the whole engine of New York media behind it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The only person that I had ever, you know, Manson was kind of the first, uh, you know, the Manson murders were kind of a big thing for me. That was the first kind of series of murders that that, that I was, you know, kind of aware of. I remember Carol Chessman, who was, I guess, raping people. I don't know if he murdered them, too. Mm -hmm. But that was something, that was the first time I remembered anything, any kind of serial crime that had... uh, uh, any degree of publicity. And so with, in terms of like the historical accuracy to the times and, and just sort of following along in that way, what are the kind of things that the writing staff and the production staff do to kind of maintain z- sort of historical integrity 
when making the show? You know, I think in wardrobe, of course, you know, they're very, very meticulous about, you know, making sure that there's accuracy there. I do feel, too, that in the style of shooting, that by it not being an overly aggressive camera, that that allows, you know, for the, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of that happening back in the 70s. Sure. You know, the camera wasn't as muscular as it is now, and so somehow that roots it into a time in the 70s and 80s, because this actually takes place in 1980-81. But, you know, the camera wasn't as muscular in those days as it is now. Uh, so that's one of the things, I think, that does the kind of classical style of shooting allows it to kind of maintain its, you know, kind of historical integrity. But, you know, just being accurate, you know, which is what you do anytime you, you, you do a period piece. Sure. And because David is as meticulous as he is, you know, nothing's going to escape. <laughs> <laughs> nothing's going to get past that is, uh, that's, that's uh, anachronistic. So I think one thing our, our listeners would be really interested in is understanding the flow of how a season of TV like this is kind of coming together. So when you're shooting your episodes, obviously, maybe some will be blocked by location and maybe, you know, uh, there's posts going on on different episodes while you're shooting yours and vice versa. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey, not necessarily the narrative plot points of what you were working on, but like you come in, is are, are David and Andrew editing or is David on set? Do you have kind of meetings with those guys to talk about what you're working on and making it all coherent throughout? Well, what's that process like? You know, when I came on, Andrew Dominic was shooting and we, you know, talked a little bit basically, but not, you know, we not so much about the show. We had met each other years before. I had actually seen, had read all, you, I read all the scripts before I come in, and, and whatever is available in terms of, of, you know, anything that I can see that's been put together, you know, that's been maybe, uh, you know, rough cut or whatever, I'll take a look at that. I don't remember seeing anything before I came on this time. Okay. Because, um, you know, we were kind of scrambling a little bit in terms of scripts. You know, where a lot of script changes were, were uh, being made while I was uh, in in pre-production and throughout uh, production on my episodes. You know, David would come on the set, he'd be there for a bit, and then he's gone. He was not, you know, he was uh, involved in, you know, I'm not sure what, but at any rate, he was, uh, he's typically not on set a whole lot, you know, on on, on your set, mm-hmm. shooting. Although, you know, a few times he, he did come in and he was there sometimes for rehearsals. Uh, and I think, again, you know, just to make sure that there was a kind of, you know, that that we weren't taking it in a direction that was outside of the parameters of, of the style. And I don't remember us ever really um, any real discussions about that, but I remember him coming in and, and, and having things to say to the actors and saying to me about, you know, what was going on in some of the scenes, you know, us discussing those things. But that was not... Uh, that, that didn't happen most of the time. That was, you know, once in a while. You know, you've worked so much in television over the last few years, and I was just wondering, as somebody who's such a veteran of of acting and of, of directing for features and directing on TV, one of the things we talk about on this podcast so much is this sort of ever-changing landscape of where really interesting filmmaking is happening. And I, I was curious if you had any thoughts about the sort of abundance of opportunity, but the impossibility of, of knowing whether or not what you're making is necessarily going to be 
uh, found or seen because there's so much stuff out there right now. And, you know, you came from from making something small and very special to a lot of people, like One False Move, and have had such a long and storied career. I was curious where, how you read the sort of landscape now. Well, you know, I kind of, it's kind of like a gold rush, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, and I kind of knew this was going to happen. You know, when when Netflix released House of Cards of the entire season on the, that one night in February of 2000, what was it, 15 or whatever? Mm-hmm. That was a revolutionary change, and I and, and I actually was concerned that it would not work because I thought you know people were wedded to their patterns of viewing, and their nights when and, and days oftentimes were you know sometimes even constructed around you know their favorite shows. But what happened is that people binge watched, and they you know they basically you know got they they got a bit of a fix, but they're still you know the needle's still in their arm. <laughs> yeah. And they still basically are looking, you know, you know, they something that would have taken them months to uh, to see, as you know, they saw in a few matter of days. So it's 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 on the one hand, you know, that there's this universe of material that's out there and, and product, but you know, as a filmmaker, it's kind of hard to keep up with with. Uh, you have to just kind of you know go with whatever you know comes in your radius because there's just so much out there. And as a filmmaker, you kind of oftentimes don't get a chance to see everything anyway, even in in the way that it was before. To me, I just feel that it's great yeah. know, because there's just so much material. You know, there's there's a lot of opportunities in a lot of different places. I don't know that it that it's in, in any way a, a negative. Yeah, it cer- certainly seems like th- even if if there, it's harder to concentrate and find stuff, it's the amount of stuff and the spe- like the specialness of the stuff is just getting more and more defined. It is. And see the thing is is that you know for the for the kinds of complex characters that are now being shown on on in cable and, and streaming and services like Netflix and Amazon etc. You're not seeing that for the most part in feature film. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the environment where you're going. This is this is where it's going to take place. You know, for for a more mature audience, big tentpole movies have kind of you know commandeered, totally taken the whole film market. In some ways, you know, you it, it, it's just a refreshing thing. I mean, I think that again because binge watching is such a popular thing with people. You know, they're actually seeing a lot more material. They actually need this amount of material to, you know, to kind of quench their appetite. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to go from, like you were saying, the the idea of building your Wednesday night around watching Lost to building your Wednesday night around watching three or four episodes of something. Yeah. 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 Carl, thank you so much for calling in. Mindhunter Season 2 is streaming now on Netflix, and I couldn't think of a more perfect fit for this show, and I really appreciate you calling into the pod. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The Righteous Gemstones. Do not miss The Righteous Gemstones this Sunday night on HBO. From the team behind Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals comes the story of a popular megachurch slash money-making enterprise starring Danny McBride as a bad boy preacher, Jesse Gemstone, John Goodman as the family patriarch, Eli, and Adam Devine and Edie Patterson as the younger Gemstone siblings. The Righteous Gemstones premieres Sunday at 10 p.m. only on HBO.